Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, we are talking with Shohini Sarah Pillai about the epic. Shohini, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is Sohini Pillai. I'm assistant professor of religion at Kalamazoo College. My area of specialization is the Mahabharata epic narrative tradition. And along with Nell Shapiro-Hawley, I co-edited a collection of essays entitled Many Mahabharatas that was published by State University of New York Press last year. And besides the Mahabharata, I'm also a huge fan of other narratives that have been called epics. And I teach a course at Kalamazoo College called epic epics. I think you also posted your syllabus at some point for the course, didn't you? I did. I posted, I think, like a photo of eight of the 10 epics we right. use in yeah. the class. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them surprising, which is very thrilling. Yeah. <laughs> okay. My first question. What the heck is an epic? That's a very complicated question. And I think I have three different answers. So the first is, you know, the word epic is derived from the Greek term epos and the Latin term epicus. And in ancient Greece, we find writers and philosophers like Pindar, Herodotus, and Aristotle describing the two lengthy narrative poems attributed to Homer, the Iliad, and the Odyssey as epics. And the term epic was also used to describe Virgil's Latin Aeneid, which is a poem that displays deep familiarity with the Iliad. And then, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later in the Common Era, we find many poets across Europe, such as the Italian poet Dante, who wrote the Divine Comedy, and the English poet John Milton, who composed Paradise Lost, clearly emulating the lengthy narrative poems of Homer and Virgil. So, you know, if we take a look at the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and Paradise Lost, we'll see a number of shared features. They all begin with an invocation in which the poet seeks to help of a muse to inspire their epic. The stories of these poems are set in a distant or legendary kind of past. The plot of these texts don't start at the beginning of the story, but in the middle of the narrative. Mm -hmm. There are these celestial visions. Gods play a huge role in the poems. They're written in an elevated style. They have heroic subject matter and there are other shared features. But it's also important to point out that there are still poets today who are writing long narrative poems in the style of the Iliad and the Aeneid. In September of just this past year in 2021, Jack Mitchell, who is an associate professor of classics at Dalhousie University in Canada, published this magnificent poem called The Odyssey of Star Wars, Mm. which retells the events of Rogue One and the original Star Wars trilogy, so A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, in the meter and the style and tradition of Homer's Odyssey. And my Epic Epic students read the first three books of this new epic, and it's absolutely delightful, and I can't recommend it enough. It's so great. So that's, you know, one understanding of epic. And I think when you hear scholars today use the term epic, often they're referring to the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid and then these other poems in European languages that are inspired by them. Yeah. But 
The term epic has also been used to describe lengthy narrative poems about heroic warriors and massive battles that were composed in non-European languages. The Babylonian Epic of Gilgamesh, the Sanskrit Mahabharata, the Sanskrit Ramayana, the Tamil, which is a South Indian language, Silapathikaram, mm-hmm. and the Persian Shahnama. Um, and in his lecture on aesthetics, the 19th century German philosopher Hegel discusses three different stages of the historical development of the epic, which are um, its first oriental, and then there's classical, and then romantic. So these are the three stages. And he describes the Sanskrit Mahabharata, the Sanskrit Ramayana, and the Persian Shahnama as oriental epics. Mm. But Hegel's you know, characterization of the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, and the Shahnama as oriental epics illustrates that the word epic is a contested and deeply Eurocentric term. And so a lot of scholars have asked, is it productive or helpful to use the Eurocentric term epic to describe and categorize poems like the Slipatikaram or the Shahnama? And as I said earlier, my research is on the Mahabharata. And I personally find epic to be a productive category for comparing the Ramayana and the Mahabharata with other long verse narratives. There have been some really compelling modern comparative studies of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and the Iliad and the Odyssey by Wendy Doniger and Shubha Pathak. Comparisons between the Mahabharata and other texts that we now classify as epics have been made as early as the 11th century. So this is why I don't personally have an issue calling the Mahabharata or Shahnama epics, because clearly intellectuals and poets in other cultures are seeing similarities between these long poems and comparing them. And then I guess my third kind of understanding of epics is so in my Epic Epics course, I treat some works like the 2021 Disney film Raya and the Last Dragon and the hit HBO TV show Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. as epics, even though they're clearly not lengthy narrative poems. But like the Odyssey and the Mahabharata, you know, Raya and the Last Dragon and Game of Thrones, they're set in a distant past. They begin in the middle of the narrative. They have these huge, fantastic battles and they center around heroic action. And what's important to me with this course I teach at Kalamazoo is not to just focus on the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid and to make sure to explore epics from non-Western cultures as well. So in the end, the 10 epics we examined were Raya and the Last Dragon, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Mahabharata, the Odyssey, the Silipatikaram, the Shahnama, the Divine Comedy, Paradise Lost, the Odyssey of Star Wars, and Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I so wish I was in the class. <laughs> On to my next question, which is, how do we use an epic? So I'm going to answer this question with some examples from the Ramayana epic tradition, because the Mahabharata and the Ramayana are the epics that I study and I know the most about, except maybe for Star Wars. I'm a huge Star Wars nerd. My dog is named (laughs) Princess Leia. But let's just stick to the Ramayana for now. The Sanskrit Ramayana is an ancient epic attributed to the sage Valmiki. And the story of this epic in which this exiled prince Rama rescues his wife Sita from this formidable king named Ravana with the help of his divine monkey companion Hanuman, uh, it has delighted audiences for over 2,000 years. The epic has been retold hundreds of times by different poets, artists, playwrights, novelists, TV producers, filmmakers, not just throughout South Asia, but throughout Southeast Asia as well, and the diaspora. And the Ramayana also forms an important aspect of the Hindu religious tradition, with many Hindus worshipping Rama as an incarnation of the god Vishnu. So 
Due to the Ramayana status as one of the most prevalent and influential epic narratives in South Asia, the characters of this epic have been used by various communities to negotiate positions of political power and social status throughout the history of the subcontinent. So pre-modern Hindu kings have compared themselves to the epic hero Rama. Members of the Nishada um, Adivasi or in indigenous community have aligned themselves with this boatman character named Guha, mm -hmm. who is a devotee of Rama. Yeah. Frustrated Dalits, this community that was, used to be called Untouchables, they've seen themselves as servile monkeys like Hanuman to the Congress party in modern India. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned, you know, this king Ravana who kidnaps Rama's wife Sita and Ravana is the king of a community of beings known as Rakshasas and today the word Rakshasa is often translated as demon and during the course of modern Indian history I would say you know in the last 115 years at least two political movements have asserted that Rakshasas were representations of a certain Indian community yeah. so the first political movement was the self-respect Dravidian cultural movement headed by Ibi Ramasamy, mm. um, or Periyar, as he's more commonly known in the state of Tamil Nadu in South India, in the early and mid 20th century. And this movement asserted that the Rakshasas of the Ramayana epic tradition were representations of the great Dravidian or South Indian people, and that Rama and his subjects were representations of Aryan high caste colonizers who invaded South India and brought Brahmins and kind of imposed their culture on these Dravidian Rakshasas, right? And so during the self-respect movement, many Tamil nationalist politicians were self-identifying with the Rakshasa community. Mm. But then this other political movement, which was the Ram Janmabhumi campaign, right? Which is this Hindu nationalist movement in the 80s and early 90s. And it sought to destroy a 16th century mosque mm -hmm. that had supposedly been built by the first Mughal emperor, Babur, by first destroying a Hindu temple that supposedly marked Rama's Janmabhumi or birthplace in Ayodhya in North India. And this campaign resulted in the demolition of this mosque, the Babri Masjid, in 1992, and the deaths of several hundred people in riots throughout South Asia. And this movement asserted that India's Muslims were the Rakshasas of contemporary India. Mm. And in the eyes of the Hindu right, just as Rakshasas were the foreign others of Rama society, Muslims, according to them, were the foreign others of modern India. Yeah. So, you know, just in the past century, we see this one set of characters, these Rakshasas from the Ramayana epic, being used in such different ways. The characters of both the Ramayana and the Mahabharata epics hold an immensely potent, describable power. And I'm just fascinated by how different individuals and communities have used certain characters from these epic narratives to pursue really diverse political, religious, and social goals at different points in South Asian history. And that's how, as you said, the categories that epics introduce in our lives percolate yeah. in, in posterity, I guess. Definitely. Okay, how will epics save the world? I love this question because the plots of so many of my favorite epics are centered around saving the world. Star Wars, the original trilogy, Jack Mitchell's poem, which again, I highly recommend, The Odyssey of Star Wars, are about the Rebel Alliance saving not just the world, right? The galaxy from this horrible empire. Raya and the Last Dragon, the recent Disney movie I mentioned earlier, that's part of my Epic Epics course, is about this kick-ass Southeast Asian warrior princess named Raya who teams up with a dragon named Sisu. I don't know if dragon is the right term. She's kind of more like a naga 
from the Hindu and Buddhist and Jain traditions. And they save their home world of Kumandra from evil spirits. I would consider Lord of the Rings to be an epic. These incredible books and the films are about, you know, saving Middle Earth. A huge chunk of Game of Thrones. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it yet. But, (laughs) you know, it's about saving the continent of Westeros and the Seven Kingdoms from these zombie snow dudes Mm -hmm. known as White Walkers. These stories, you know, they're all set in the past about how the world was saved. They're exciting and they're entertaining, but they can also be very comforting in their own way. I think the world constantly needs saving and it will continue to need saving. Mm -hmm. And again, um, reading and hearing and seeing these epics about saving the world can be very comforting and often really inspiring. I don't know if epics can save the world, but they certainly are often about saving the world. Let me just ask you, why do you love Star Wars? I think I love Star Wars for the exact same reason I love the Mahabharata. It's just whenever you start a new Star Wars movie, and it says a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. As a kid, I found that so fascinating because you look at Star Wars and you think you're looking at the future because the technology is so advanced and like they're using goalie spaceships. But then the main character or like the the good force in Star Wars are these Jedi Knights Mm. who have swords, right? Um, Like, yes, they're laser swords, lightsabers, right? But it just, it harkens back to these kind of um, really fascinating stories often centered again around saving the world and the stories in star wars are just so universal i think they're just told in this really exciting and new way or at least um, that's how i felt when i was five years old and saw a new hope for the first time it's so fascinating the number of ways that star wars is told in different forms like you know this poem i keep on talking about the odyssey of star wars tv shows comic books As a kid, I had all of these Star Wars dictionaries and encyclopedias of characters that I would just love to like look through and read. And a huge reason I love the original Star Wars trilogy is because Princess Leia was unlike any princess I'd ever seen before. But, you know, now thinking about it, I think there are these fascinating women, both in the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, who are also these kind of warrior princesses like Umva and Shikandini from the Mahabharata or Chitrangada Mm -hmm. from the Mahabharata, literally a warrior princess, and at least in Tagore's retelling of the story, right? So a huge part of it was Princess Leia, but just also these ways of retelling a story that feels very old, but also very modern at the same time. And I just love that so much. Brilliant. Shoini, thank you so much for coming to us and talking about epics. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.